Today's scripture comes from Psalm 73, and uh, you can follow along. It's printed inside your bulletin. Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They speak, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, as people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. You know, if you're joining us for the first time, what we're doing in the fall season is we are looking at the Psalms, and the Psalms are just a beautiful part of the Bible for a couple reasons. Uh, One, it is like the songbook of the Bible, and uh, if you love music, songs are one of the most unique ways in which uh, your heart is touched, in which your heart is changed. But the Psalms are also great because they are very authentic about the human experience. What we're trying to do is, uh, if you think about uh, an album of music. We're, we're trying to build an album of psalms that we can kind of turn to when we experience various human experiences. And so we've looked at things like sorrow. We've looked at things like anger. We've looked at things like fear. And today we're going to look at a very common experience that I think most people have, which is the experience of doubt. Now, when we talk about doubt, I'm not making a moral judgment about doubt in the sense of, oh, doubt is good or doubt is bad, but I'm just assuming that there is this experience of doubt, and the question is, what do we do with these doubts that we have? And I think one of the mistakes that uh, a church can make, one of the mistakes that uh, our church can make is if we build a culture where it's not safe to express genuine, authentic doubts. And uh, I should qualify that because, of course, there are different kinds of doubts but, you know, there is a doubt that is born out of rebellion. So it's kind of like a doubt that says, um, you know, I just don't want it to be true. And so whatever you say, whatever uh, counsel you give, whatever answer is given to me, uh, it doesn't really matter because my heart is set on rebelling against God. And uh, a lot of times those doubts are based on a, maybe some kind of experience or traumatic experience. And uh, you're just kind of throwing a, a little bit of a tantrum against God. But I think there's another kind of doubt, uh, if we're going to nuance this a little bit, that comes from a place of uh, frustration and struggle. Uh, there's a kind of doubt that uh, I think we need to make room for, and it's a kind of doubt that maybe is born out of 
some kind of lack of understanding or connection, uh, a frustration that's born out of the fact that what you thought you believed and knew about the Christian faith, about God himself, doesn't seem to really be matching up with your experience in life. And as I said, as a community, we, we should make room for uh, people expressing these authentic kind of struggles and doubts and not cast judgment upon anybody who expresses these doubts because here's one of the things that doubt can potentially do. It can actually lead to deeper conviction. It can actually lead to a greater maturity of faith. That's why I think Psalm 73 is so helpful because it's not advocating this kind of blind faith of like, oh, you know, uh, just blindly believe. But rather, it takes us through the experience of somebody who thought he understood God, who wrestled with his doubts, but came out on the other side with a greater conviction about the goodness of God. And uh, just as an aside, Psalm 73 is, uh, is, I think, such an important psalm for many of us. And the reason I say that is because this is a psalm that I've turned to many, many times when I've, uh, I've counseled people. Uh, I've referred to the psalm. I've read the psalm with people. Uh, I've prayed this psalm with people. And <clears throat> I think when we're going through hard times, this psalm is probably one of those psalms that best encapsulates some of the things that we may go through and some of the doubts that may arise in our hearts. But rather than ignoring uh, those doubts or allowing these doubts to fester and maybe grow into uh, unbelief, we should bring these doubts before God in prayer, and we should ex- be able to express them. <coughs> now, this psalm, it begins uh, very simply with a very simple statement in the beginning, and it says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This, this verse right here, this first verse, it basically sets the doctrinal context of this writer, of the person who's writing this psalm, uh, named Asaph. And basically, he is stating what he believes to be true. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But when he says God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, he has a certain interpretation of what that means in terms of what it looks like in his own life experience. And he seems to think that, that what that means is Therefore, God will provide a life of ease, a life of comfort, a life of wealth, a life of prosperity to those who are pure in heart. And I I think when most of us think about God's goodness, perhaps we think about it along these lines as well. We, We think God is good, which means maybe he'll spare us from hardship, or God is good because he spares us from hardship. Or God is good, which means he will uh, give us all of these material things and things that um, we think will fulfill our lives. But, you know, when struggle comes and this guy Asaph begins to look out into the world and looks at his life, he realizes that's that's not true. That he thought God was good to Israel, but then he sees the wicked. And he sees, and this perhaps is a psalm written during exile, so... If that's true, he's looking at the Babylonians and he's saying, look at these people, they destroyed Jerusalem and yet they're so prosperous and they're doing so well. And what about me? What about us who are trying to be pure in heart? Are you really good? That's what I thought, you were good. And, you know, just look at some of the things he says when he describes the wicked. He says, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek and uh, fat I know in our culture is not a good thing. Nobody wants to be called fat. Uh, but in the ancient world, fat was actually a good thing because it meant you were affluent. You had a lot to eat, right? You could become fat because you had so much. 
He says they have this, uh, they, have, they don't seem to have any troubles in life. Their life is pretty good. And as a result, it seems like they're enabled to do more wicked and evil things. They are proud. They are violent. They speak with malice. They threaten oppression. They can mock God and they can interpret the ease of their lives as evidence that God, in fact, is not powerful or real. And so he summarizes their lives as this. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And he's saying, what is going on? The world is not supposed to work that way. God is not supposed to work that way. I thought God was good. I thought God was truly good to those who are pure in heart. And I think this is one of the ways in which uh, this is what doubt can potentially look like. And he uses this illustration uh, in verse 2, and he says, his feet had almost stumbled and he nearly slipped. And uh, I'm sure all of us have had that experience where we almost tripped, right? I know it's embarrassing, but uh, there's this moment where uh, we're losing our balance, and there's a moment where we can kind of regain our balance and perhaps uh, make ourselves upright where there's a moment where we just kind of, bam, hit the floor. And I think that's a good ex- illustration of doubt. Uh, overcoming doubt is kind of like regaining our balance, right? We lose our balance, we get hit, we trip. Uh, but sometimes doubt can be so powerful that it makes us, bam, hit the floor. And Asaph, he sees the wicked and compares it to his own life. And he's, he's stumbling right now. Now we, uh, I think, perhaps we don't relate to his particular doubt, But I think to a certain extent, we at least know what he is feeling. Because when something bad happens to us, especially if we don't really see the meaning of it or the purpose of it or the point of it, we tend to wonder, why? Why, God? Why did you allow this to happen to us? Why did you allow this to happen to me? Uh, God, if you love me and if you care for me, why am I the one that is going through this? And if you're a believer, you may even say, God, I'm a Christian I try to serve you. I try to live a life uh, of obedience to you. And yet still, why are you allowing this to happen to me? And perhaps that's when doubt begins to come into our lives and we begin to doubt the goodness of God. We don't seem to understand it. How can God be good when all of these things are happening to me? And there's this disconnect between our doctrine in terms of what we believe about God and our experience, where our experience doesn't seem to be Uh, reflecting the doctrine that we believe in. But when we dig a little bit deeper, we find that there is something that is driving this doubt. And in verse 3, he says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And, uh, you know, he's saying this, I looked at the wicked, and I'm envious of them. They have the life that I want. Have you ever done that? You look at somebody else's life, and you go, Oh, if I could have their life, wouldn't it be so great? Uh, I'm sure we all play these fantasies in our mind to a certain extent. That's actually envy. Uh, but for most of us, we don't think that it's, uh, it's that bad of a thing because in our culture, envy is, you know, envy is built into the way we do marketing. We want to create envy so that we can uh, sell products and get people to buy things. And I think maybe most people miss uh, or underrate the power that envy can have. And, and you know, in the, I guess in the uh, history of the church, envy is one of the seven deadly sins But envy can be so dangerous uh, when it comes to faith. Envy, uh, what does envy do? Envy makes us feel like we are poor. Uh, Envy says, I don't simply want this, but I need it. Envy makes us think like we're victims. We're victims of our own circumstances, victims of our own situation. Envy makes us forget blessing. When we forget blessing, we 
take on this posture of poverty. And when we do that, we become entitled people and we expect certain things in life. And then envy poisons our minds and fills our thoughts, saying, We don't have what we need, we don't have what we deserve. God hasn't given it to us. And therefore, when there is envy, there is a lack of gratitude. When there's a lack of gratitude, there is a lack of joy. And envy takes us down this path of grumbling and discontent. But the biggest danger of envy is probably the way that it could potentially distort our perception of God. Because envy says, we have not received what we deserve. We have not received what we are entitled to. And therefore, God has not been fair to me. And if God has not been fair to me, then how can God be good? You see, doubting the goodness of God and envy, it it does seem to go hand in hand. Uh, If you recall, there's a scene in the beginning of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, that leads to the fall. And the serpent tempts Eve by saying, if you eat the fruit, this fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. And how does the serpent actually accomplish this? By raising doubts about the goodness of God. And the serpent basically says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And that question is designed uh, to elicit a, a thought of, oh, why is God restricting the choicest fruit of the garden? Why is he not allowing me to have it? And with that introduction of doubt, then the serpent introduces this idea of envy. If you eat of this fruit, you will be like God, and you will know good and evil. And you see there's this intertwining uh, element between envy and doubting the goodness of God. And that's the craftiness of the serpent, using envy to introduce doubt, which ultimately led to disobedience and sin. And here, Asaph, he almost falls into that same trap. And he is on the verge of giving up because he says this, all in vain, right? All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. And basically, he's saying this, what is the point? What's the point of following God? What's the point of believing in God? What's the point of trying to obey him? It hasn't worked out in my favor. But you see in that statement, you actually see what is wrong with his understanding of God and what is wrong with his relationship with him. Because when we say this, we say, I'll obey you and I'll serve you as long as, God, you do this, as long as I have this, then we're not really serving God. We're serving something else. God ceases to become our greatest treasure, but he's simply a means to an end. He is our way of getting that which we treasure. And when we view God as a utility, as a means to an end, then that usually means this. We have no idea who he is in his beauty and in his glory. I suspect, again, that that's how many of us relate to God, at least. Uh, that's probably where many of us started uh, in our walk with faith. I know that's where I started in my walk with faith, and usually we never realize it until we've experienced some kind of hardship or struggle and we begin to wrestle with what we thought we knew and what we believed about God. That's why doubt can actually lead to a deeper faith and a kind of more mature faith. Because if we go through life with the understanding that God is good to us because he gives us things and everything works out in the end, then we actually miss why or what makes God good in and of himself. But when we wrestle with our doctrine and our life experience, we actually come out knowing God more and being rooted in who he is. 
And, you know, it's not easy to go through that process. That's why in verse 16 he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. All right, it's a wearisome task to go through that, but at the same time it can be a transformative process. Now, how does this happen? Uh, you see the turning point in verse 17 in, when he says he entered into the sanctuary of God. The sanctuary, it's, it's a place of worship. Uh, it's, it's a place of God's presence, and it's only when he comes before the presence of God and in worship that he's transformed, that he's changed. You know, sometimes when we experience doubt, uh, I think maybe the temptation we have is we want to withdraw. Uh, we want to withdraw from uh, the church community. We want to withdraw from uh, worshiping with the church community. Uh, we want to withdraw maybe even from personal prayer. And I think sometimes we do that is because we feel guilty that we have these doubts and we don't want to act, do the act of worship while we're still wrestling with these kind of doubts. But I think what this psalm shows us is when we are authentically struggling with these kind of doubts, the best thing to do is actually to worship. The best thing to do is actually to continue to engage with God and to bring these doubts before God. Because once we experience His presence... That's where great transformation takes place. That's where it seems like all doubt subsides. I was reading a book um, <clears throat> about recapturing the, the wonder of God, about transcendence, and uh, hopefully the fruit of that book will be in a sermon next month. But uh, you know, it's so interesting. The author is trying to distinguish between different kinds of knowledge. Uh, so, for example, a food chemist can tell you a lot of information about a strawberry, Right? Uh, a food chemist can tell you about uh, the chemical makeup, about maybe the amino acids, about um, the interaction of why your brain interprets the flavor of strawberry as sweet. And all of these things, maybe a food chemist can tell you. But if a food chemist has never tasted a strawberry, they don't really know what a strawberry is, Right? A child who has tasted a strawberry and experienced it probably has more useful and better knowledge of a strawberry. Let me put it another way. Who do you want making you your dinner? A food chemist or somebody who loves food and has tasted food? If we have any doubts, sure, it's helpful to get more information about God, and sometimes that can help. But I think at the end of the day, what we need is a different kind of knowledge, one in which we taste and experience and taste that the Lord is good, that we remember his, his goodness as we experience his presence, as we worship him. And I think that is one of the ways in which God can deal with our doubts in a very meaningful way. When Asaph, he enters uh, the sanctuary, a couple of things happen. One thing that happens is his doctrine is recalibrated. Again, what is his doctrine? Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He comes to a new understanding of what that actually means. What does it mean that God is good? And we can say that uh, it could mean a variety of things. The word good is one of those words that you can use in a variety of ways. So if you tell me uh, that a certain restaurant is good, and you're basing it on the fact that the restaurant, the food is delicious, and I go to that restaurant and uh, the prices are out of this world, and I go, why would you tell me that's a good restaurant? It's so expensive, it's not worth the money. We have these different definitions of what good is, right? And so he has this different definition of what it means for God to be good, and now he comes to this new understanding of it. 
Why is God good? It's not because he gives prosperity. It's not because he gives life of ease. God is ultimately good, he realizes, because he gives us himself. He gives us himself. God gave himself to Israel. But even that was veiled. And therefore, Asaph could experience a taste of God's goodness. But you know, because of Christ, we have more than a little sample. We have more than a little taste. In a sense, we have been exposed to the great feast. You know, growing up, maybe your mom would let you taste the food before dinner, and after tasting it, you would say, oh, I know this dinner's going to be good. I can't wait to eat dinner. That's like the people in the Old Testament. They get a taste. But when Jesus comes, when Jesus comes, and he dwells amongst us, and that veil is lifted, and that curtain temple is torn in two through his death and through his resurrection so that God's presence would now be accessible to the entire world. We get to have that taste in a much more glorious way. And therefore, there is a sense in which we're no longer receiving a taste of the meal, but we're, we're sitting at the table and uh, we haven't feasted yet because the feast comes uh, in the new heaven and new earth, but we see the feast and we know what's coming and we know how good it's going to be. And when we say that God is good, God is good because we get to be invited to that table. God is good because he invites us into fellowship with him. God is good because he makes a way for us to experience his presence and to know him in a personal and intimate way. God is good because he becomes our only treasure and he reveals, he shows us the very beauty and the very glory of who he is. And you see, Asaph, he comes to that conclusion and he has this drastic reorientation of his heart and he concludes, but for me, it is good to, to what? It is good to be near God. That's what is for my good. The nearness of God is what is ultimately good for me. At first, he's looking at the benefits, the benefits of God rather than God himself. But by the end, he knows that God himself is the ultimate treasure and the ultimate good. It's a little bit like marriage. Um, I know not everybody's marriage married, but there, there are certain benefits to marriage. There's uh, tax benefits, right? There's, uh, there's someone maybe who's always at home. There is someone who can help with the chores. You can share two incomes. Uh, maybe there's a greater sense of like, uh, I don't know, being rooted. Right? Marriage has all these benefits, sure. And perhaps some people want to get married for those benefits and for those reasons. But if you do, uh, you're probably coming into marriage not with great motives. Because ultimately, marriage is about being united to another person. It's about enjoying the relationship with being in another person. It's not for the benefits. It's for the person. And you become one with that person. You know, similarly, knowing Christ, it can have certain benefits. In Christ, we are justified by faith. In Christ, we have eternal hope. In Christ, we have been adopted into his family. In Christ, we have this imperishable inheritance, and so forth and so forth. But what we have to remember 
is that what is of primary significance, it's not the benefits that we receive in Christ, but it's Christ himself. It's that we can be united to him. It's that we can be in relationship with him. It's that he invites us to this wonderful feast that will take place in the new heaven and new earth. And if we can rest and receive the gospel and enjoy the anticipation of this meal and be in his presence, that is probably the most powerful thing that God can do with our doubts. May we not doubt, but doubt is a realistic human experience. When we do doubt, and when we do doubt the goodness of God, bring it before God. Worship, even though you don't feel like it. Pray, even though you don't feel like it. And when God reveals his presence to us in his sanctuary, uh, doubt perhaps will turn into deeper and greater conviction. Let's pray together.